Thank you for joining us here in this first Sunday of 24. And I guess I could ask you all just generally, but you can tell me the answer later. How is it starting? You know, how is this year starting for you? Maybe you have resolutions. Maybe you're doing well or you're already slacking. I don't know. Sometimes I think um, looking at lives of Christians from long ago can inspire us today. And this week I was looking at the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards and I read one of his sermons, uh, Heaven, A World of Love. And it was just very long, and, but very inspiring, right? Um, and then I also was thinking about Charles Thomas Studd or C.T. Studd as many remember him. I think um, one of our missionaries wrote a devotional about that, right? About him among others. And C.T. Studd was born in 1860 and came from a wealthy British family, received the finest education the land had to offer, excelled as an athlete, a cricket player, and as a young man in his early 20s, his life was, as it looked, just filled with possibilities and potential. But when his brother fell seriously ill, C.T. came to a screeching halt, it shook him. He asked, what is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? He did recall his born-again conversion experience from six years prior, but between then and now, he had to admit with much regret that he's been living as a backslider. Now here's this wake-up call. He emerged from this experience with these words, I know that cricket would not last, and honor would not last, and nothing in this world would last. But it was worthwhile living for the world to come. C.T. would go on to become an evangelist and a missionary. The dangers overseas did not intimidate him. He was determined and said, someone to live within the sound of church or chapel bell I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. If you're like this, you read something like this and you're stirred, pumped up, it gets you going, hopefully today and beyond today. You feel that conviction to share the good news with the lost. But then you hesitate. You know? Doubts and questions flood your mind. Do I know what I'm going to say? How am I going to say it? Am I ready? What if this or question, that question comes up? And instead of heading out and opening our mouths, we retreat and keep silent. Before you know it, days, weeks, months, maybe even years pass by, you feel guilty and sorry, and you hear another motivational story of some hero of fate, and you feel the guilt, and then the cycle repeats itself. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be trapped in this cycle as I start this new year. I want to be a faithful pastor and do the work of an evangelist, as 2 Timothy 4.5 says. But it's on all of us, really. The Lord told every disciple to go into all the world and preach the gospel, as Mark 16.15 says. And today's passage from 1 Corinthians 
not only gives us a model to follow in Paul, it reveals how we can improve, I believe, our faith-sharing practices. Here's a quick review of what preceded chapter 2. Paul closed the opening chapter of the epistle, reflecting on two major paradoxical truths. One, there's this God's method and means of salvation, the preaching of Christ crucified, that is contrary to everyone's expectations. Two, it turns out that also the recipients of salvation were contrary to everyone's expectations. On one hand, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That's in verse 21. On the other, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Verse 27. The both what must be believed and who ends up believing. Surprise, astonish, confound the world. But the result of all this is glory to God alone. No flesh may boast in his presence. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. I call this the paradoxical and doxological calling of God. Paul offers two object lessons or concrete examples of this calling. Uh, One, it's the Corinthians themselves. Not many of them were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. For a quick lesson on humility, all they had to do was look around, see their calling. They weren't exactly world shakers left to themselves, but they had much to boast in Jesus, who became for them wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now moving on to chapter 2, there's an object lesson, number 2. Again, to illustrate the paradoxical and doxological calling of God. Besides the Corinthians, there's Paul himself. At the end of chapter 1, the apostle said, look at your humble beginnings and look to Christ. Now at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, look at me. Observe how I point to Christ. Watch, listen. Remember when I first brought the gospel to your city. There's a proper way to present the good news that brings glory to God alone. Let's take a look at how in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Here's a short comment on the paragraph structure. The first verse, I call this the summary statement. It's a snapshot of how Paul evangelized in Corinth as the apostle to the Gentiles. It may inform your reading of Acts in his ministries to um, Corinth and other cities of the Gentiles. Now I ask you to skip down to verse 5. This is the purpose statement. Everything in this paragraph builds up to it. 
Why did Paul talk the way he talked? Why did he walk the way he walked? The simple answer is this. He wanted the faith of the Corinthians to be not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that means that everything from the summary of verse 1 to the purpose in verse 5 guides us in our efforts to reach the lost and lead them to trust in Jesus, not in us or anyone else. I'm saying that if we want the faith of our unsaved family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, enemies to be in the power of God and not in the wisdom of men, we should follow Paul's example. By doing that, we come to three points of this sermon. I'll give them all in advance now. The three points all start with the letter D. Determination. Disposition. Demonstration. Determination, disposition, and demonstration. To share the gospel effectively, we'll need three things. First, we need the determination to focus on God's Son. The determination to focus on God's Son. Next, we'll need the disposition of fear before God's presence. We need a disposition of fear before God's presence. Finally, we need a demonstration of faith and God's might. So, demonstration of faith and God's might. So, first, there's Paul's determination to focus on God's Son, and I'll cover verse 1 and 2 while discussing this point. Again, as Paul opens this chapter, there's a shift in the subject. You see that phrase in chapter 2, verse 1, and I, brethren, compare that with chapter 1, verse 26, you see your calling, brethren. So after humbling and instructing the Corinthians, the apostle points to himself as an example of how to glory in the Lord and not boast in the flesh. He reminds them of that first time they met Paul, how he did not come with excellence of speech, or of wisdom declaring the testimony of God. The Corinthians did not need another fancy talker or some wise guy. They needed a preacher of the gospel. Paul came to be a witness of God, to speak big of him. The man wanted the gospel at the forefront and stay out of the spotlight. We need Paul's example because we messengers do often get in the way of the message. He's a good model for us because God worked effectively in him towards the Gentiles, as Galatians 2.8 says. So again, here's the first of three lessons in verse 2, the determination to focus on God's Son. And when Paul says, I determined not to know anything, you have to understand how hard that would be for a guy like him. Paul's someone who knows a lot of things. Not a one-trick pony. He's got a lot of formal education and a lot of life experience. He could look at you and say, boy, I've forgotten more than you'll ever know. But now, for the sake of the gospel, Paul's saying, I'm going to take all this that I know, put them all aside. That's why when I arrived in court, I chose to know nothing except 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is something we must do as well, deliberately and intentionally. I mean, we speak all the time. I mean, we reveal our knowledge all the time. We want to let the intellectuals in our, in our circles know that we're well-read. We don't want them to think we're dumb. We want to let the skeptics know that we're very open-minded. We want people in our social circles to know that we're up-to-date with the latest news. Now, there's nothing wrong with the water cooler talks you know, or friendly debates. But there will come a time, and I hope it's this year, when we must stop the small talk and get to the weighty talk. We have to get past the icebreakers and get to Christ and his work. Perhaps you can pray, Lord, help me when I'm with this lost neighbor or with that unsaved family or friend. I want to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. So make this your resolution. Pack away your particular expertise as you talk to certain individuals. Lay aside your local sports knowledge for an hour or two. Ignore the itch to express your political opinions for just a moment. Act as if the gospel is the only thing you know. Talk about Jesus as if he's the only person you know. If Paul, with all his knowledge, all his vast knowledge can do this, we can do it as well. We need this kind of laser focus because there will be plenty of distractions and difficulties and discouragements as we evangelize. Remember that the message of the cross itself is offensive. Remember what was said in chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. To those who want to see a powerful savior like the Jews, a weak and cursed Messiah, an oxymoron. To those who want to hear a wise sage like the Greeks, the thought of a disgraced leader dying like a fool sounds dumb. But don't dismay. All the more reason to carry with you this determination to focus on God's son. It may sound difficult to do this, but, and it is if you think it depends on you, right? We must learn to look outside ourselves for strength. You know, that takes us to verse 3. Here I think you see Paul's disposition of fear before God's presence. Let me read this verse again. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. You might ask yourselves, why would you want to preach the gospel like this? We like confident speakers. Stand up straight. Push your chest out. Square your shoulders. Nope, not Paul. If Paul was alive today, he would not be a featured speaker at a TED Talk. He's not exactly Tony Robbins. He's not wowing his audience with his stage presence. In fact, here's what Paul's critics had to say about him from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. His letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Ouch, talk about a harsh rebuke. 
if I was sitting under Paul's preaching, I might ask him, hey, Paul, can you at least act like you're self-confident? Or like, just why not, as they say, fake it until you make it? Well, actually, here's the thing. If you think that Paul's suffering from some inferiority complex or needs some boost in self-esteem, you'd be wrong. If you think he's on some losing streak or a bad season of his ministry, you'd be incorrect. Some imagine a narrative line like this, something like Paul was really discouraged by the lack of positive response at his last major stop in Athens, so he arrived at Corinth in the manner he describes in verse 3, in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. I disagree with this interpretation. But what's the real reason Paul's showing weakness, fear, and much trembling? If it's not from the fear of man, where does it come from? The answer, Paul fears the Lord. You see, not all shaky hands are from anxieties of public speaking. Not all tremors come from some underlying health condition. It can come from this disposition of fear before God's presence. Because Paul had this godly fear, because he was impressed most by God, Paul's not afraid to be his unimpressive self. His fear is not the fear of man which brings a snare. His fear is the fear of the Lord where there is strong confidence. Who cares if critics say his bodily presence is weak or his speech is contemptible? If you're not convinced of this interpretation, here are some proof passages. You'll see at times how fear and trembling or related words can be an expression of a healthy reverence before God. In the Old Testament, King David exhorted in Psalm 2:11, "Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling." Isaiah 8:13 says, "The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread." In Jeremiah 5:22, the Lord himself asked his foolish people, "Do you not fear me? Will you not tremble at my presence?" King Darius, after Daniel survived the lions, then decreed that his subjects must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Daniel 6.26. On to the New Testament. These are all from Paul. See how later in 2 Corinthians 7.15, the Corinthians welcomed Titus, Paul's friend, as a minister of God with fear and trembling. When the apostle wrote the Ephesians, he told the bondservants in the congregation to obey their earthly masters in sincerity of heart as to Christ with fear and trembling, Ephesians 6.5. He urged the Philippians to work out their own salvation, that is, grow in their own sanctification with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. So as Paul expects godly fear in every believer, in every circumstance, he displays the same fear in himself in his gospel ministries. His witness of God is effective because he speaks in the sight of God, before God and Christ. He speaks not as pleasing men, but to please God who tests his heart. He and we need this disposition of fear before God's presence as we live as witness for God. The next time you feel nervous about evangelizing, fear God more than man. 
Don't just gut it out. Don't reach deep within yourself for some courage, blah, blah, blah. Fear God above all. Know that you're doing this before the Lord, for the Lord. Yes, we're going to all the nations. Yes, we stand before many people. But speak as your audience is the audience of one. I'm learning a new language as one of your New Year resolutions. Here's a Latin phrase for you, Coram Deo. It means in the presence of God or in the face of God. Koram Deo is a wonderful phrase, much better than Hakuna Matara. Koram Deo is the way to live for him and speak for him. If the faces and the crowds intimidate you, if they seem to mock you with condescending stares, fear the face of God more. Koram Deo will lead you to live. Gloria in excelsis Deo, right? You know that? Latin phrase, that is, if you speak with reverence before the face of God, you'll live a life that amounts to glory in the glory to God in the highest. Now that we've spoken of Paul's determination to focus on God's Son and his disposition of fear before God's presence, we go on to the demonstration of faith and God's might. I'll cover both verse 4 and 5 under this heading. I'm going to read verse or reread verse 4 in a moment, but first a quick review. Verses 2 and 3 correspond to something like a backstage preparation and the walk up to the podium. Imagine Paul the speaker has determined in advance the sole subject of his talk, Christ crucified. He's repeating and rehearsing the message. The contents are the same wherever he goes. Now as he approaches the podium, Paul feels the weight of his role as an ambassador for Christ. The audience would be wrong to conclude from his appearance, his appearance that he's got stage fright. Rather, Paul's conscious of a greater audience high above him, more so than the lesser audience right in front of him. At last, Paul opens his mouth, but none of the expected fancy vocabulary and pleasant eloquence comes out. Where's the educated Jewish rabbi trained under the, under the famed teacher Gamaliel? They might have walked away disappointed. Apostle Paul himself says in verse 4, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. He wasn't here to demonstrate his amazing rhetoric or logic. He wants to step aside and make way for God's might. To help us understand the potential of God's might, Paul gives us two words here, spirit and power. Spirit and power tell us of the profound impact of the gospel. Consider these as subpoints A and B under third point, if you like, A, spirit. And when I think of the impact of the Spirit, I think of God's Trinitarian personal impact. Uh, that's a word, that's a mouthful there, but God's Trinitarian personal impact. And then when I think of power, I think of God's transformational impact. What I mean by Trinitarian personal impact is this. 
When we share the gospel, it's not just one human talking to another human or humans about another human. We recognize our one God in three persons. We speak focusing on God, the Son, and his work of redemption. We stand as witness before God, the Father. And here's the thrust here. We need the help of God, the Spirit. We earnestly, we're earnestly hoping and praying that the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, would make his impact. We ask that he does his part as we do our part as witnesses. It's so assuring to know what the Holy Spirit can do through our testimony. The scriptures inform us not only of his indwelling ministry among the saints, and we're going to see plenty of that in 1 Corinthians but also of, the, of his ministry among the lost. In particular, I find the words of our Lord Jesus in John 16 to be absolutely crucial. I'm not trying to preach another sermon within a sermon, so I'll be quick on this flash, flashback to John's gospel. I encourage you to look at some commentaries. Um, and Anyway, it's the night before the crucifixion. Jesus' time on earth is coming to a close, about 43 days left. He's comforting his disciples. He's explaining why it's to their advantage that he goes away. For if he does not go away, the helper will not come to them. But if Jesus departs, he'll send the helper to them. Now, what kind of help is this helper going to provide us? Christ tells us plainly in John 16, 8, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And Jesus continues in verses 9 to 11, explaining sin and righteousness and judgment. When Jesus says that the Holy Spirit, the helper, will convict the world of sin, he's speaking specifically here of the sin of unbelief, their need to repent and trust in him. As for righteousness, the Holy Spirit exposes the world's empty and ineffective self-righteousness. The world must realize their need for true righteousness found only in Christ and declared by his disciples. Lastly, concerning judgment, the Holy Spirit reveals that the world's condemnation of Jesus was wrong, is wrong. True condemnation falls on Satan, their ruler. Now, again, there's much to be explored here, and it's worth another sermon. But the main point of passages like John 16 and 1 Corinthians 2 is that the Holy Spirit is the helper. He grants the help we need as we live for God, preach the message of the cross. Ask the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to make the Trinitarian personal impact in our gospel ministry. And then when we speak of God's might, there's also the transformative impact of the gospel, as we see in that word power. I don't think that the references to power in verses 4 to 5 refer to outward signs of the apostle, wonders, and mighty deeds. Rather, this power refers to the message itself, the message of the cross, the power of God, as we saw back in chapter 1, verse 18. Even as Paul knows well that it'll be foolishness to those perishing, he still puts the gospel front and center. He gets out of the way 
so that the spirit and the word can do its work. To highlight the power of God's word, he lays aside persuasive words of human wisdom. It is Paul's hope that God's spirit and power would accompany all of his evangelism outreach efforts. Finally, we're at verse 5. We, here we bring everything together, the, de- the determination to focus on God's Son, the disposition of fear before God, and the demonstration of faith and God's might. All three are aimed towards one goal stated in verse 5, that our faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. How will you make Paul's purpose your own purpose in life? I personally made it a goal in my pulpit ministry to include the gospel in every sermon because I don't know who's going to show up on Sundays or who's going to listen to the recording that's put up on the website. But you don't need a pulpit or a microphone to share the gospel. Just go through the main storyline of the Bible. God is the creator. He made all of us. But then all of us have sinned and brought the world and mankind to ruin. We broke the laws of the Lord, made idols of human wisdom, coveted, lied, stolen, murdered, lusted in our hearts. We're deserving of God's holy wrath. Our place in hell, away from his presence forever. But then God didn't leave us as we are. He loves us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life and lay down his perfect life for our sakes. He was crucified not because he did anything wrong. He died in our place as our substitute, paying the penalty of sins we've committed. He rose from the grave the third day and ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. Before it's too late, we must repent and trust in Jesus for salvation. Turn away from sin and self-righteousness. Turn to Christ Jesus, the one crucified for us, so we may enjoy eternal life. You cannot earn an interest into heaven. You cannot deserve God's gift. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And having been saved from God's wrath, we can live our lives for God's glory. And a key part of such living will require you to imitate Paul and his ways in Christ and passion for the gospel. So make known the gospel this year, this month, this day for the rest of your life. You don't need to be gifted as an evangelist or commissioned as a missionary to fulfill this purpose. But we can be inspired by such uh, people. And I started with this sermon with uh, um, some quotes from C.T. Studd, and I'll finish with one more. One, only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray.
Lord, it's true that we only have this one life to live, and when we think of eternity ahead of us, how important it is that we make best of our time. Lord, um, we may not all be called to be officially evangelists or called overseas to be missionaries, but Lord, you have called us, and out of our humble origins, not to become something great in ourselves, but to boast in you, to make known your son, his work, his person, his ministry, his redemption. Lord, may we lose ourselves in the sense that we don't become so preoccupied with our lives and our schedule and our busyness that we don't prioritize your message, the mission you've given us. Help us to determine even this week to think of somebody that needs to hear the gospel. Help me, help us, help all of us to do this, Lord. Give us a compassion for the lost. And Lord, may we lay aside our own persuasions and our own wisdom so that you be glorified and that the faith of men and women around us would be on you. Ask that this would be our purpose. Spirit, help us. Spirit, empower us. We ask the Spirit to transform lives through the message. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.